Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. This month marks the 10th anniversary of the war in Syria. After a decade, hundreds of thousands have been killed, millions displaced, and the country is still in crisis. The UN says that 60% of Syrians are at risk of famine in the coming year. Well, joining me is Robert Ford. He is a retired U.S. diplomat who served as the U.S. ambassador to Syria from 2011 to 2014. Robert Ford, welcome to Pushback. Nice to be with you. I want to get into your recollections and reflections uh, on the 10-year anniversary of the war. But before we get into the past, I want to talk about the present. The current U.S. strategy in Syria is one of a military occupation in about a third of Syria and also crippling sanctions that are preventing Syria from rebuilding. You recently wrote a piece called U.S. Strategy in Syria Has Failed. How would you describe the U.S. strategy uh, in Syria today and what do you make of it? I think since uh, 2015 and the importance of ISIS to the United States, the U.S. has had two uh, two key interests in Syria. One, and most important, was uh, destroying the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS. And there was a second uh, but less important goal, which was to try to uh, pressure the Assad government in Damascus to make enough reforms to make a political solution to the broader Syrian civil war possible. The Americans actually did pretty well on goal number one. Uh, ISIS has been pretty much defeated. Uh, it holds no territory and it has many fewer fighters. Uh, it's of February 2021, Pentagon report says that it's no longer able to attack from Syria uh, to outside of Syria to places like Western Europe or the United States. Uh, so that's all very good. Uh, but on the second goal of helping to resolve the Syrian civil war to promote a political settlement, there I think the Americans have failed and failed badly. How so? Well, in short, there has been a United Nations-led uh, negotiation about a new Syrian constitution. Uh, that started in 2018 and for three years has made no progress of any note, nothing significant. Essentially, the Syrian government has refused to negotiate. It simply just kind of stalled. Um, refused to write, take notes on uh, areas of agreement or disagreement, which was the UN mediator's latest suggestion, uh, rejected by the Syrian uh, government delegation. The, in the end, uh, Bashar al-Assad really does not want to introduce political reforms under outside pressure. I'm not sure he'll ever introduce political reforms. That's a different question, but certainly under outside pressure, he and the Americans, despite uh, occupying about a quarter of the country, uh, using different kinds of economic pressure, withholding oil revenues, uh, economic sanctions, and other things, uh, has not succeeded in extracting concessions from Assad either. And I think, therefore, we really do need to have a rethink about what we're doing in Syria. So do you think that the U.S. should be occupying Syria still and imposing these sanctions that prevent reconstruction? 
Um, I'm mostly concerned about the American military forces because we've already lost a few. I'm happy to say only a few, about a half dozen. Uh, but that's still half a dozen soldiers lost for what exactly? Uh, it's not clear to me. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that the American troops were sent into Syria originally to fight ISIS. Now that that job is more or less finished, we have a sort of mission creep where now the American forces are there uh, not to defeat ISIS. ISIS is already defeated, as I said. Pentagon report itself, February 5th, 2021, said it's defeated. Um, can't threaten outside of Syria, which is the most important thing. But now, so what are the Americans doing? Well, now they've sort of changed the mission to putting pressure on Damascus, the Assad government, trying to get the Iranians out, trying to limit the Russian influence. Um, the military force, to my mind, is no longer serving a useful purpose. It costs about two and a half to three billion dollars a year. I'd much rather see that funding used for higher priority needs elsewhere. So I think the military forces should leave. Uh, they probably need to leave in such a way as to not cause confusion the way the Donald Trump idea of withdrawal did. Uh, there needs to be close consultation with the Syrian Kurdish militia with which uh, we partnered against ISIS. We need to talk to the Russians about it, how they would come in uh, to help uh, chase the remaining uh, pockets of ISIS here and there. Uh, but it's not something we have to do. Sanctions is a different question, Aaron. Um, I think a lot of it is emotional here in the United States. Uh, there's a desperate desire for justice after all the war crimes committed in Syria. And uh, I think getting rid of the sanctions is going to be a much harder uh, battle to fight in the Congress. Uh, the sanctions have very strong approval in Congress. And I think the first step in that is to say, what are the sanctions actually achieving? Well, one thing the sanctions are achieving is, you know, starving the Syrian people after all the suffering they've already gone through. And I'm wondering if you think we have any right at this point to be sanctioning a country that we helped immiserate. You know, this was a war that we were involved in through the CIA uh, uh, Timber Sycamore program, the proxy war. I mean, do, do we have a responsibility actually for the chaos that happened in Syria? And then accordingly, what right do we have to sanction a suffering country? I think it's important. Uh, two things there. Number one, um, Syria's economy was suffering uh, well before the civil war. And it was suffering. Uh, it's one of the reasons the civil war broke out is uh, there were large segments of Syrian society that were not benefiting. Uh, from the Syrian economy. And so they joined into the protest marches way back when this started 10 years ago. Uh, it's, let's not forget that the Syrian economy has been mismanaged for decades. Um, with respect to what the sanctions are doing now, yeah, yeah, I think the sanctions are adding to the problems of uh, the Syrian economy and they're adding to the problems of regular Syrian. Look, the sanctions are designed to uh, cut back on foreign currency inflows into Syria. The Syrian exchange rate has plummeted now. Um, it's largely wiped out whatever was left of the Syrian middle class. Uh, it's reduced the amount of investment coming into Syria. That means fewer jobs, which then has an impact on the Syrian labor market in terms of unemployment and wages. Um, I, I think it would be foolish for 
uh, an American official to say that the sanctions uh, don't have any impact on regular Syrians. I was in Iraq um, after the American invasion there. I went in a few months after our soldiers did. And there was no Iraqi middle class to speak of by then. Sanctions over a period of years against the Saddam Hussein government had wiped out uh, this Iraqi middle class. And I think our sanctions are doing the same in Syria. Uh, but that does not relieve responsibility of the Bashar al-Assad government, both for militarizing the entire uprising that dates back to 2001 and does not uh, absolve the Assad government for the economic mismanagement and corruption, uh, which afflict Syria to this day. Well, it's true there is corruption. It's true there's corruption in many states, but not every state has massive amounts of death and refugees. And I see that as a consequence of a war. And on that front, you know, in terms of the militarization of the conflict, let me ask you about that. You know, initially 10 years ago, there were protests, especially in Damascus, uh, you know, opposing the restriction of freedoms, calling for the release of political prisoners. But there also was, as I understand it, I wasn't there, but from what I've read, there were violent attacks on the Syrian army as well. And I'm, I'm wondering, is you being on the ground back then, when you first started to see the protests becoming militarized and this turning from some protests against an autocratic regime into a armed, uh, militarized, militarized war? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a fair question. So I was on the ground and I led a team of American diplomats uh, several of whom, like me, speak Arabic. Uh, and we also worked closely with a number of other embassies, including the Japanese embassy, the Danish embassy, the British and French embassy. Uh, and uh, this is what we saw, Aaron. In March and April, May into June, uh, the protests were almost entirely peaceful. Um, I myself went to Hama, where there were huge demonstrations in June. Uh, the Syrian government was furious that I didn't. I didn't join in the marches, but I watched them, and uh, there was no violence. In fact, we drove around the city of Amma. It was a pretty big city. It was about a million people, and there was no damage anywhere. I, I distinctly remember driving by the, the city's uh, police headquarters, and there were two policemen sitting out in white plastic chairs under the trees. It was June. It was hot just sitting in the shade of the trees, drinking tea. Um, it's not like there was a war going on. Or they weren't worried about getting uh, uh, sniped at or anything. They were sitting out on the sidewalk in the shade of some trees, drinking tea. So uh, let's, let's keep that in mind. That's not to say there was no violence. Uh, in the first protest, for example, in Gara, uh, which we're now coming up on the 10th year anniversary, uh, yeah, they're, they protesters did attack uh, the telephone office owned by Bashar al-Assad's cousin, Rami They did attack uh, a court building. Uh, they were demanding, actually, not so much free speech. That wasn't the issue. It was police brutality. They were demanding uh, that the police chief in Dada be sacked because he had arrested and beaten up some kids. And uh, when the protests spread to Damascus and Homs, and to cities on the Mediterranean coast, like uh, Banyas and Tartus, and then out east, the Zone. It was police brutality and the security services unaccountability uh, that was really the focus of the protesters' ire. Um, 
to be honest, the, the fighting uh, didn't really start in earnest until August. There had been a few gun battles in there, but nothing big. Uh, but in August, it got serious. And uh, that's when the Syrian army went in and physically occupied uh, Hama, the city that I had visited in June. Uh, they physically occupied the city of Dedazor, smashed up the town mosque. I was, I still remember watching the video and thinking, my God, if the Americans did that in Iraq, it would just be horrific. Um, but that came in August. The Free Syrian Army, your listeners might be interested to know, uh, where did it come from? Um, there were originally deserters from the Syrian Army, uh, young men who left the ranks. Uh, and took their weapons with them and joined protest marches and were sent up to rooftops. And their job, now I'm talking about July and August, uh, their job from the rooftops was to watch the protests down below. And when the Syrian security forces came in, say, from the left, uh, they would shout down to the protesters, run away to the right. And um, they would shoot at the Syrian security forces coming at the protests uh, they would shoot at them in order to give time for the protesters to run away. Being arrested at that time was a very bad thing because the Syrian security forces are, to this day, uh, infamous for their torture and their mistreatment and abuse of detainees. You know, in terms of your timeline, I, again, I wasn't there, but from what I've read, Anthony Shadid of the New York Times, the now deceased uh, New York Times correspondent, he was reporting in May of 2011 that even U.S. officials, possibly yourself, were acknowledging that the protesters were, were armed. And then in June, you have the mass killing in Jasir al-Shagur of more than 100 Syrian soldiers, uh, which was, it was later confirmed, committed by the opposition. So I, I get the picture that I drew from all this is that early on, in parallel with the protests for reforms, there was actually an armed rebellion earlier on. So the, it's interesting you raised the Jisr Sahur incident, um, since the Syrian government asked for our help on that. And Jisr uh, Sahur is a little place up near the Turkish border. And a fight started there because the police arrested some people and the people said, let them go. And, uh, and it escalated into shooting between the two sides. And in this case, the people with guns uh, outnumbered the security forces, and the security forces were overrun. And it took a little while for the Syrian government to send in enough forces to take the town back. But Jisr al-Sagur was not a big place. It was kind of out of the way. It's kind of hard to reach, actually. Uh, if you drive up to Aleppo, you have to make a long detour to get to it. In the principal places, Aaron, where protest movement was big and where it was uh, politically important, Damascus, Homs, Hama, Banyas, Tartus, Berezor, Dara. Uh, for the most part, there really was not any big fighting. Um, there was shooting and there was killing on the side of the Syrian government. And we saw that with our own eyes. And we had American diplomats who saw the Syrian troops fire into crowds. So, um, we didn't see a lot of shooting back in the other direction. Were there arms? Yeah, absolutely. Syria, like Iraq, has a lot of arms. So, but it's one thing to have them, and it's another thing to be organized to use them. Right. Okay. So, at whatever point this conflict became militarized, 
I think we'll disagree on the dates. Did you, how did you feel about, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, arming what turned out to be Salafi jihadists, uh, mostly benefiting groups like Al-Qaeda and their allies? And then you had proposals early on that were initially rejected, I believe, by Obama, but later on approved to to arm these same factions. What did you think about this tact of arming the militants fighting the Syrian government? So a uh, couple of points on that. Uh, number one, uh, those countries did send in weapons before the Americans. Uh, they didn't ask for American permission. Uh, in some cases, they informed the Americans, uh, but they weren't asking for permission. And I think that's especially important. Look at how Turkey is today and how many problems we have with them, whether it be over uh, Turkish acquisition of Russian surface air missiles or the way the Turks react with our working with a Syrian Kurdish militia. Uh, Turkey doesn't take orders from the United States. Um, and they weren't asking for permission. Were the Americans enthusiastic about it? No. Um, if you go back and look at our statements from 2001 and 2012, and even 2013-14, uh, we were always demanding that there be a political solution. We used to say over and over again, there is no military solution in Syria. Uh, civil Syrian conflict. We wanted a negotiation. This, I would say, Aaron, comes from uh, the Obama administration's uh, trying to learn the lessons of the disastrous 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, nobody wanted to like, rush in and overthrow Bashar al-Assad. And let's be honest, we could have. We didn't. Um, because we didn't want a repeat of Baghdad 2003. And I was in Iraq in 2003, and I was spent five years off and on at the American embassy over the next years. And it was just, it was a disaster. And none of us wanted to repeat that. So we always wanted Syrians to negotiate with Syria. That was always the goal. Um, that's why Hillary Clinton signed an agreement uh, called the Geneva One Committee with the Russian Prime Minister Lavrov and the United Nations Secretary General regarding Ban Ki-moon and others, uh, including Turkey and Saudi Arabia, uh, that there needed to be a negotiated deal to set up a national unity transition government. And it was signed, I remember, on June 30th, 2012. And I was immediately sent to talk to the Syrian political opposition, who was in exile, uh, to say, you have to get on to work with this. Um, one of our challenges, frankly, uh, was getting the armed groups to go along with it. And that goes back to the army with uh, the different armed groups that you mentioned. But in 2013, Obama does authorize this arm and equip program funding these militias. And I'm wondering just what you think of that. Did you, I'm not sure, were you in government still at that time when this was authorized? And, and what did you think when, when Obama decided to finally arm the militants? Yeah. So I have to tell you, Aaron, I supported arming uh, factions of the Free Syrian Army as early as the summer of 2012. And it took the president a year to get to that decision. Uh, a number of us who were working on Syria urged the president to do it for two reasons. One, uh, if we didn't arm people who were willing to go along with the negotiated settlement, remember that's what we were after, negotiated settlement. 
if we didn't arm the people who would back a negotiated settlement, they would be overtaken by extremist elements, the Al-Qaeda, which in Syria was called the Nusra Front. Uh, and we didn't want that. That would just complicate ending the war. Um, and we were very uncomfortable uh, with Al-Qaeda spreading into Syria. That's why we had to close the American embassy. It wasn't because of the Syrian government. It was because Al-Qaeda poised risk to the physical safety of the American embassy in Damascus, and we didn't trust the Syrian government to be able to protect us. So we had to close the embassy in February 2012. Um, the second reason I supported uh, arming the Syrian Free Syrian Army, which was for the most part more secular, um, was that they would then be able to put some pressure on Bashar al-Assad. And it didn't look to us by summer of 2012, uh, more than a year into the uprising, that Assad was going to negotiate of his own free will. It appeared to us that it was going to take a measure of coercion and pressure. As I look back in retrospect, Aaron, frankly, uh, that assessment about Assad negotiating under pressure may have been wrong. Uh, there are some very good analysts out there, people like Aaron Lund uh, and Carnegie and Sam Heller at the Century, New Century Foundation and uh, Josh Landis out of the University of Oklahoma, who disagreed vehemently with an assessment that Assad would have negotiated under pressure like that. Um, the history will show he didn't. Although by 2015, he was on his back heels and talking about the need to retreat across several fronts. That seemed to me to suggest he's beginning to get it, that he's not going to win the terror. But in any case, that's when the Russians intervened. So we never know. But let me ask you, in terms of what you wanted Assad to negotiate about, the way I hear you, it's that you were pursuing reforms. But the way I heard U.S. officials speak publicly, is, including Hillary Clinton, is that they wanted him to go. Yeah. So was the demand not his ouster? In which case, why would he negotiate that? So yeah, he did. We did say he had to go. Uh, but we didn't say when. And we didn't say where in the process. Um, we said that's up to Syrians to negotiate. I remember a conversation I had with John Kerry in 2013, about a year before I with the State Department. And uh, the Syrian opposition uh, was talking about putting forward a proposal that said, uh, Assad doesn't have to go right away. We're prepared to negotiate how long he stays. And Kerry said, I don't know if I like that. And I said, Mr. Secretary, if that's what the Syrians end up wanting to do, we're gonna have to go along with it. We can't, we can't be harder line than the Syrians. I mean, that's ridiculous. We can't be, I remember I said to him, Kerry speaks French. I said, we can't be plural royal I said, we can't. I mean, if that's what the Syrians come up with, uh, we're going to go along with it. Um, and he didn't argue. I think he was a little surprised. But <clears throat> I think, Aaron, it's worth noting, because I bet your listeners don't know. Um, in January and February of 2014, the UN did convene a big peace conference on Syria. Russia attended, the Americans attended, the Syrian government attended, Syrian opposition attended, with the blessing of armed groups, including armed groups that we were having. And um, the Syrian opposition at that conference, it was in uh, Switzerland, uh, the Syrian opposition in writing gave to the United Nations mediator, by name Lakhdar Bahini, Algeria. Uh, they gave Lakhdar a paper saying, we're willing to negotiate the composition of a new national unity transition government 
and we are even willing to negotiate Bashar al-Assad's role there. This was given to the United Nations from the Syrian opposition in writing. When Lahtar tried to give the piece of paper to the Syrian government uh, delegation head, a guy named Ambassador Joffrey, he wouldn't even touch the piece of paper. Literally sat on his desk in front of them in the negotiating room. So um, people who say this was all about overthrowing Assad, it sounds nice. It's a great soundbite, but it's actually not at all accurate. But if we're pouring weapons into the country, Turkey is letting tens of thousands of fighters pour over the border. The U.S. even gave, I believe after you left government, but the U.S. gave anti-tank missiles, which helped al-Qaeda capture Idlib. It's, and the U.S. is saying publicly that Assad has to go. Can you understand why it's hard not to believe that the goal here was regime change. And I, I'm just wondering, looking back now. I will say, Aaron, on this, um, you're being selective and in some cases inaccurate. The United States never gave anti-tank weapons to al-Qaeda. Not directly, but they gave it to their allies who then gave it to al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda. Well, Aaron, them. the number might be half a dozen. The one person I know who's really studied this in detail, I'd recommend him to you very highly, is a guy named Jacob Janowski. You can find him on Twitter. He did a very detailed assessment of all of the videos that the Nusra Front, this Al-Qaeda Front, put up on the internet. And he concluded that about six missiles, U.S. anti-tank missiles, were in fact uh, made their way to Al-Qaeda. And Aaron, I want you to think about this in a historical context. Do you think when the Americans airdropped weapons into the French uh, resistance against the Nazis in France, do you think the Nazis never got their hands on any of those airdrops? I mean, seriously, Aaron, do you really think that? Well, the problem I have with that analogy is that... To the leakage to the Al-Qaeda elements, there was a small amount of leakage, but much, much, much more of their weaponry came from the Assad government, either because the Assad soldiers, corrupt, as we said, we talked at the start about corruption, uh, they sold them, or in some cases, they surrendered, and with that, huge caches of weaponry made their way into Nusra hands. The amount of material that Nusra got from the United States wouldn't have lasted them for a day of combat. Uh, it's just completely inaccurate uh, to say that the United States was funneling arms to jihadis. I see that complaint all the time, and it's simply not true. That's actually why I agreed to come and talk to you today. Well, and, and I appreciate you coming on because... Um... I, it's rare to be able to speak to someone with your direct vantage point. But look, to me, it's not controversial. Joe Biden admitted in 2014 that U.S. allies were essentially arming al-Qaeda and Nusra. He said that at Harvard University. He later apologized for it because it offended Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But it, it was true, I think. And the U.S. knew about well, let's this. Let's draw a distinction, Aaron. Um, I was talking about the American timber sycamore program. Right, I got that. But, but even, uh, If yeah. you want to talk about the Turks, uh, the Turks did play dirty. They played very dirty. And frankly, we called them out on. I did personally on three different occasions uh, with the Turks in 2013. And once with the head of Turkish military intelligence, Hakan Fidan. And I said, uh, you are allowing people over the border uh, stuff is making their way to groups that are killing, fighting and killing the people we're trying to help that will back a negotiated settlement and it has to stop. The Turkish response, frankly, uh, was disingenuous at best. Uh, and the Turks would routinely say to us, well, if you give us the names of the people that you don't want to cross, we'll put a lookout on them. 
And I remember saying to them, and I saw senior State Department officials say this to him, people like Wendy Sherman and Bill Burns at the time in the Obama State Department. Uh, this is not about giving you a couple of names. This is about you shutting down the border to stop extremists moving back and forth. Um, I'd be very frank with you, Aaron. Uh, the Turks in private, Turkish friends of mine in the Turkish government said, you know, we're doing it because they're the best fighters. They're the most dedicated. And they're the ones that are going to turn around uh, the fight against Bashar al-Assad and win. And I remember saying to him on one occasion, said, you guys are playing with snakes poisonous snakes, and they will come back and bite you. I said, you don't know what you're dealing with. We dealt with these same people in Iraq, and they're deadly. And uh, <laughs> one very self-assured Turk said to me, after we get what we need against Assad, we will kill them ourselves. I thought, wow, that's a really Ottoman Turk mentality, but you don't know what you're dealing with. Okay. On the point of Idlib, not to debate this too much, but I I, I want to read you one quote from Foreign Policy magazine from Hassan Hassan, who was very much a supporter of the uh, militancy. He's a very bright So he okay. So he writes this: the recent offensives in Idlib have been strikingly swift, thanks in large part to suicide bombers and American anti-tank tow missiles. Right. Remember that. Uh, what was the date of that, Aaron? Was that two thousand and thirteen? He's writing this in 2015 when Al-Qaeda and its allies captured Italy. They were making progress towards La Tequia. Oh, so, well, well, yeah. Well, 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 let's talk about that. That's well, good you raised it. So, so there were two. I, but just to clarify my point quickly. Fighters in that. Just to clarify there my point. There was the Nusra Front and there were Free Syrian Army elements. It was the Free Syrian Army elements using American-made anti-tank rockets. And my point is that the the provision of these anti-tank missiles helped Al-Qaeda. That was my initial point. I well, realized that deliber mean, deliberately the U.S. didn't say, let's send these to Al-Qaeda. Like it would be like saying that um, American progress against the Nazis in France helped Joseph Stalin. I mean, I guess on one level that's true. But it's, well, except it's we were arming, that, except in this case, we're arming the Nazis. Level, Aaron, please let me finish, Aaron. Okay. To say that the Free Syrian Army was fighting on behalf of Al-Qaeda would be completely wrong because they did not share the ideology. If anything, I think, frankly, had Assad fallen, you would have then seen a very nasty battle for power between the Free Syrian Army and the Nusra Front. I don't know if Nusra would have prevailed. It would sort of depend on what kind of outside assistance reached them. Um, but this was a marriage of convenience, a tactical level marriage of convenience against a common enemy. I don't think it was wise politically for the Free Syrian Army to do this. And that's why we put the Nusra Front on the terrorism list in 2012, was to warn the Syrian opposition away from the Nusra Front. But as the battle got nastier in 2013 and 2014, uh, their uh, motives for making a marriage of tactical uh, convenience with the Nusra Front outweighed uh, our cautions against doing it. I understand it. I, I can remember talking to three Syrian armies commanders about it, and they spat at me and said, if you would give us more help, we wouldn't need the Nusra Front, but you don't. This is what I meant, Aaron, about, you know, if we don't help the moderates, the bad guys would prevail. What if we had poured in no weapons at all? 
wouldn't that have averted 10 years of what would have happened had we done that turkey would have continued anyway qatar would have continued anyway saudis i don't know maybe they would have maybe they wouldn't have but i know that the turks and the Qataris would have continued so he would have had uh longer fighting would assad have won more quickly maybe kind of depends how much the turks were willing to escalate um the turks have sent troops of their own into syria so the turkish capacity to escalate should not be underestimated. I mean, they might have sent troops in to fight Assad earlier. They had a big battle with Assad a year ago. So um, certainly the Americans would be able to say, not our problem. Um, Would it have ended the Syrian civil war? Not at all clear. It depends on other foreign states. States Well, that's not the happy answer, Aaron. Well, states with which we are allied. States with which we are allied and given, well, look, it's my, it's my, it doesn't mean they do what you want them to do. That's look, not, it the, doesn't follow that way. You seem to uh, argue that the Free Syrian Army was a major fighting force outside of Al Qaeda. It's my understanding from what I've read that the dominant fighting forces inside Syria were Salafi militants, primarily Al Qaeda, and then later on ISIS. And that's who really. Assad was fighting for the bulk of this war, notwithstanding the army defections that, yeah. of course, so it, it would be nice theory if it was true, but it's, I mean, let's be honest, it wasn't. They did become predominant, Aaron, you're right. They did become predominant by the end of 2015. That, I think, is absolutely true. And we still continue to send in weapons then? Well, Aaron, if you look at the demonstrations, I mean, there are lots of videos. Just take a look at those demonstrations in 2011. You don't see any black flags of ISIS. You don't see any black flags of Al Qaeda. None. No, but you did hear people chanting Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. That to me is undeniable. I, I'm not denying the. I've heard that allegation. It might be true. But if it's true, it's a very small minority and definitely not a majority. I well, saw that with my own eyes personally. But yet, it was a big Muslim Brotherhood stronghold. I saw no Al-Qaeda flags. I saw no jihadi flags. I met no jihadis. I saw lots of people at checkpoints out of government control, but I saw nobody. And I certainly wasn't, I mean, my bodyguard was a little concerned, I have to tell you, but we were never held against our will in any way. Just the opposite. They wanted the Americans to see what they were doing. And our message in 2011 was dialogue and negotiation, our message in 2012, dialogue and negotiation, our message in 2013, dialogue and negotiation. That's why we went to the Geneva peace process. Um, If we wanted regime overthrow like 2003, we could have done it, believe me. The Syrian government, their army is not that tough. This is not a replay of Libya. This was a different approach. Did it work? No, it failed. Um, I'm not sure there's anything the Americans could have done to resolve the Syrian conflict. I, that's where I've come away from this. I've been away now out of the government for seven years, and I think we tried, we could not fix this problem. Let me Maybe ask you this. It would be better not to try, but in any case, we couldn't fix it. Let me ask you this. It did succeed in bleeding Iran and Hezbollah. Was that a part of the goal? No, I th- oh, I think there were people in the American government, sure, who would be happy with that. Uh, but that wasn't the American goal. I mean, I, I can remember sitting in one meeting and they said, well, at least they're killing bad guys. But I, it wasn't, that wasn't why the Americans were doing it. Um, I would put it to you this way. There was a sense in the American government in 
2011 and 12 that Arab populations were finally deciding they'd had enough of tyranny and enough of uh, rampant security force abuse. And they wanted justice and they wanted accountability. And that for us on a kind of an emotional level was easy to sympathize with. In certain places though, because in Bahrain, when people rose up, the U.S. backed Saudi Arabia when it crushed that uprising. Uh, you mean the one in eastern Saudi Arabia? Yeah, you're right. In and Bahrain. In Bahrain. In Bahrain, yeah. Yeah. No, where, I, where the I, U.S. I, Navy has you know, the initially, It's interesting you raise that, Aaron, because initially the Obama administration's response to the Bahrain uh, situation was to say uh, the Bahraini government needs to negotiate with the protesters. And it's only after the Saudis sent in... Uh, what they called, I think, Operation Peace Shield with other Gulf Cooperation Council states. The Americans kind of watched, didn't object. And then, uh, frankly, parts of the United States military that have a close relationship to the government of Bahrain prevailed in the interagency arguments. And uh, the American position shifted to being more supportive of the Bahraini ruling family. But initially, the Obama response was um, in favor of the protesters and the need for a political reform program uh, that would meet uh, the demands of the protesters. All right. I have kept you way over time, and I want to respect what we committed to. So if you have to go, I understand. I do want to ask you a question about Latakia, though, which you, rose, which you raised earlier, which I think is important because, you know, you mentioned that's a, that those are rebels that we were supporting. But Robert F. Worth of the New York Times wrote a piece called Aleppo After the Fall in May 2017, and he wrote, that if the U.S.-backed rebels had been successful in Latakia, that they would have committed sectarian mass murder against the Alawites there. One, is that correct? And two, if it is, what business do we have supporting people like that? Yeah. So the people that we were supporting was Timber Sycamore, and I met them myself. Uh, they would not have committed sectarian mass murder. Um, I'm going to give you an example. Um, Googling uh, a guy named Colonel Apijabar Logati, um, who in 2012 came to our attention because he uh, did a national radio address. I mean, he was in the Free Syrian Army, but a radio address which we actually picked up, in which he said to the Alawi community, We're not fighting you, we're fighting a president and a, a security apparatus, the head of which by coincidence, that was the word he used, was Sutva in Arabic, is an alloy, but we're not fighting alloys. Now, fast forward a year and a half, and Katie uh, said, well, I, the Al-Qaeda fighters are our brothers. And he was justifiably heavily criticized for saying that. I remember we ourselves you know, said, what on earth are you doing? What are you talking about? And that's he's the guy I said, spat at me and said, if you would give us more serious support, we wouldn't need these people. Um, don't mistake practical alliances for ideological compatibility. They're two different things. Are there people in the Syrian opposition, the armed opposition, who would have slaughtered Alawis? Absolutely, there were. And as time went on, it got nastier and nastier on both sides, I would add. Um, in the end, Aaron, what we have now is a Syrian government which has murdered tens of thousands of people, far more than ISIS killed, far, far, far more than ISIS killed, as reprehensible and awful as ISIS is. 
that has used chemical weapons. I know that's controversial for you, but the evidence is quite clear. It is actually because I've been I know covering it is, a. But I'm telling you, yeah. the evidence is quite clear. And which has uh, used sexual abuse as a weapon. Uh, that's documented also by the United Nations Commission of Inquiry from the Human Rights Commission. And so this, the, the nastiness of this fight has increased on both sides. Um, it was bad enough in 2011 when the uprising started. Um, it descended into deeper and deeper levels of hell as it went on. Um, I think and I, what I hope your listeners will take away from this is that uh, it is not an equal combat on both sides. It's not an equal responsibility on both sides. One side from the beginning was using torture, and shooting at innocent people, thousands of arrests. And one side was trying peacefully, for the very large part, uh, to bring about change. And uh, unfortunately, in this instance, the bad guy. Robert, if we're flooding the country with weapons and the main beneficiaries of our involvement are groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, how can you say that we're trying to resolve it peacefully? And if Syria, look, I understand there's no justifying torture. There's no justifying crushing dissent, uh, especially that happened early on in with the with the protests. But I, I guess the point I'm making is that it wasn't just a crackdown on peaceful protest. There was a war. And in the context of a war, war crimes will be committed. People are going to be killed. And my concern as a citizen of the West is what responsibility do I have for that war? And if the U.S. spends billions of dollars on a CIA program, one of the most expensive in this in the CIA's history, by all accounts, then I think the U.S. has a responsibility, too, for this and a responsibility for all the death and suffering that happened. And I'm wondering if after 10 years of this, you think that if had we not, can we at least agree that had this had this not happened, had there not been this massive foreign effort uh, to have a proxy war in Syria, that all the death and suffering would not have happened? I think the Assad government would have fought either way. And so your question then is if the Turks, the Americans, the Qataris had laid back, Saudis had laid back, uh, would it have been better to let Assad win relatively quickly instead of kind of where we've gotten at today? Is that what you're asking? Yes. I mean, aside from the fact that I, that's accepting that we have the right even to do that to a, to a sovereign state, even one that we don't like. Well, so let's talk about sovereignty for a minute. Um, Absolutely, Syria is a sovereign state. That's absolutely true. But within the context of sovereignty, there's also a sense of responsibility, which is to say that the Syrian government is responsible for not destabilizing its neighbors. And even had Turkey, Qatar, the United States, Saudi Arabia stayed out of it, there still would have been huge refugee flows trying to escape from those same brutal Syrian security forces. And they still would have flooded the borders of Lebanon, of Jordan, and of Turkey which is itself destabilizing, particularly in Lebanon, but also in places like Jordan and Turkey. Therefore, you can't just say that, uh, oh, these other countries intervened in uh, sovereign Syrian territory. The Syrian government itself was taking actions which were destabilizing to its neighbors. And that's why uh, you get into this who started it stuff. I think uh, it, it's never ending. Uh, we actually looked at the question of responsibility to protect, um, which was a doctrine that came out of the Rwandan genocide experience. Um, in the end, the Obama administration decided not 
to invoke it, uh, mainly because there was a sense that the UN Security Council would have to approve it, and we knew the Russians and the Chinese would be uh, because they don't want any foreign state intervening in any sovereign state's internal affairs. Uh, and if Syria was refugee flows were destabilizing neighboring countries, uh, they didn't particularly care. Probably Putin enjoyed it. So, but the logic of that, we're going to convince that the sovereignty argument is um, that's one. But the logic of that, we are going to intervene because there are refugees, but intervene in a way that creates far more refugees. I'm very confident that if not for the foreign intervention, flooding the country with Salafi fanatics from around the world and weapons, that there would not be as many refugees. Well, I'm never going to justify the Turks allowing Salafi jihadis to go into Syria. I think that I've already said that was a bad mistake. And we criticized them at the time, playing with snakes and all. Um, I'm never going to justify them. Um, but I have to say, Aaron, that in the end, they came in response. They came in response to what the Assad government was already doing. And so the principal responsibility, do the Americans have a share of responsibility? Of course we do. Yeah. I mean, it was our anti-tank missiles blowing up Syrian government tanks and not just a few, I mean, hundreds of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they blunted the initial Syrian offensive when they were. Russian Air Force started doing uh, close air support. So, but yeah, are the Americans the, do they bear primary responsibility? No, I don't think so. I think we have to go back to where it started in 2011, and that's with the Syrian government. You know, had Assad, and I actually sent a message to him at the time, um, had Assad just fired a couple of his top security secret police people, we all knew who they were, we all knew what they were doing. Uh, had he just fired them, he probably could have gotten ahead of the whole protest movement right there. That was the message I sent him. This was in uh, May 2011. Um, a Syrian businessman was going in to see him that day, asked him, asked me if I'd like to pass a message. And I said, yes, this is the message. I said, you know, can't you just fire a couple of these guys and get ahead of this uh, and tamp it down? I said, we're not trying to destabilize you. The Americans want stability in the Middle East. We're not after what's happened in Egypt and what's going on in Bahrain and Yemen, we're not, the last thing we need is, you know, more uprisings everywhere. I said, but you're gonna have to, you know, get a hold of these security forces that are running rampant. The message came back here from Assad, I can't. You know, when I got that message, I thought, I can't. I wonder what that means. And it wasn't clear, the businessman couldn't elucidate. Um, did it mean like the security guys have me surrounded and I'm, I can't, I mean, they'll kill me if I try to remove them? Is that what it meant? Or did it just mean I'm not going to make concessions under pressure? I can't make concessions under pressure. It wasn't clear. To me, to this day, still not exactly sure what I can't meant. But whatever, he didn't. And 10 years later, we have uh, a catastrophe. All right. So as we wrap, um, is there any constituency in Washington and the establishment that is, do you think is ready to let go of this war, to admit that the U.S. side has has lost and to support a withdrawal from Syria, as you seem to support, uh, and also to end the sanctions? I think there are uh, foreign policy thinkers who are ready to do that. But inside the administration itself, I'm not aware of any. Some of the Biden team 
um, with whom I worked in the Obama administration. I think uh, a number of them think the American relationship to the Syrian Kurdish uh, YPG militia is generally a good thing. I think they still hope that uh, American leverage will sooner or later, even if it's later, much later, uh, will extract the concessions that they hope to see from Bashar al-Assad. And uh, no, I don't. I, you know, there, there are groups like the Quincy Institute, which has um, and and defense priorities, which have urged uh, the administration to withdraw forces out of Syria. But I don't think there are many inside the administration or in the Congress. All right. Well, um, Robert Ford, I'm very grateful for your time. I do want to mention, since you raised the issue, have you followed the scandal around the OPCW where inspectors that went to investigate allegations of chemical weapons in Duma in April 2018 had their report censored and have alleged that there was a cover up of their own findings? Right. So but who are the people making those allegations? Were they the experts or were they sports staff? Yeah. They were the actual inspector. Well, there's two that we know of so far. There, and um, the, both the, of the, the the allegations that I have seen are from sports staff. Who well, not actually one of the one of the whistleblowers. One of the authors, uh, one of the whistleblowers who has made this allegation, actually was the top chemist on the team and actually wrote the team's original report. And that's what is at issue here: is that uh, he says that his initial report, which has been leaked to WikiLeaks was doctored and censored and that instead a a, a bogus report was tr was a t was put in its place which was then thwarted after internally it was protested but that's the scandal here which is that the team's own findings have been suppressed and this is a very consequential investigation because the u.s bombed syria along with britain and france based on this allegation uh, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if you followed Wait, it. I'm, uh, are you talking about the 2000 and 13? No, I'm not talking about Guta in 2013. I'm talking about Duma in 2018. Oh, during the Trump administration. Yes. So I have to say on that, I'm not aware. Okay. That I have not heard. Um, I'm, I'm frankly, um, what happened in Duma, uh, I mean, at that point, the Syrian government was about to take it over anyway. And I'm not familiar with that controversy within the OPCW. The 2013, I paid much more attention to. Um, but I guess I would just say this, um, Aaron. Um, there's plenty of documentation uh, by the UN's uh, joint investigative uh, group with the OPCW that looked at incidents in Syria, chemical weapons use uh, from 2013 onward. They've issued several reports. They've said that in at least one instance, ISIS used uh, some kind of uh, mustard gas up in northern Syria, uh, but that there are at least four to five documented, clearly investigated, documented instances, instances where the Syrian government, even after the 2013 uh, disarmament deal, um, where the Syrian government used chemical weapons, uh, mostly chlorine gas, although there's, I think, one allegation of Syrian of uh, sarin gas use. So, um, you know, the 2018 incident, I, I don't know about that report, but I have no doubt whatsoever uh, that the Syrian government has used chemical weapons on multiple instances. The same government that bombs hospitals, the same government that bombs bakeries, the same government that kills people in detention routinely. Look at the photos from uh, that were brought out by the military defector. 
you know, why would you think they wouldn't use chemical weapons? Why would you think they would suddenly have moral scruples against these? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, look, that's a whole other debate, but I find these allegations pop up in pretty inconceivable situations where in the case of Ghouta in 2013, the OPCW, no, UN inspectors are already in the country. In the case of Duma, as you said, Syria was about to retake Duma anyway. So why would they do the one thing that they know will trigger U.S. military intervention? And then you have, most importantly to me, the suppressed evidence of the Duma case and allegations of a cover-up at the OPCW in conjunction in 2018, yes, which I find very serious and I think raises questions about the accuracy of other investigations. But that's a whole uh, different minefield and it's not what admittedly I brought you on for. Well, so I don't want to- again, Aaron, we'll talk about it. Yeah, but listen, I, I want to give you the final word uh, uh, before you go. Any any final words you want to uh, leave viewers with about Siri that you think is important now after 10 years of war? Yeah, there is one thing. I do think we need to get American troops out of Syria. I, 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 there's mission brief. ISIS has defeated we kind of did what we set out to do. It's time to declare victory and go home. Can't fix the Syrian civil war. By contrast, something the Americans could do that would be hugely helpful is to increase humanitarian aid to the Syrian refugees, the number some 5 million, uh, particularly in Lebanon, where their living uh, circumstances are precarious, very precarious, but also in Jordan and Turkey. Uh, I, that's something where we have access. Um, the UN can work. Other agencies can work. Save the children. Care. Médecins sans frontières. Doctors without border. All of them can work freely. Uh, but it's a resource issue, and I think we need to increase resources there. I'd like to spend less on the military operation and much more on humanitarian aid. And then there is the issue of uh, Northwest Syria, Idlib, where the UN is in charge of an operation getting humanitarian aid to some 2 million displaced Syrian civilians. And uh, if the Russians shut that operation down, use a veto in the Security Council, um, people in Idlib will either flee, which is a problem, um, or they'll starve, which is immoral. And I think there too, the international community is going to need to replace the UN operation with something else to get humanitarian aid in medicine, food, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, they're going to have to figure out a way to replace that UN operation if the Russians do try to shut it down. Um, it would be much better to reach some kind of agreement with the Russians not to shut it down. And I hope the Biden administration ramps up diplomacy uh, with the Russians over the next few months before that vote at the beginning of July. Robert Ford, you've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate your willingness to engage with some critical questions. So thank you very much. Yeah. Robert Ford is a retired U.S. diplomat and the former U.S. ambassador to Syria. Robert, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron.